But right now, we're going to read from Acts chapter 19. So if you've got a phone or a Bible, you can open up there. Acts chapter 19, and we're going to be starting at verse 21. And it'll be up on the screen as well. Acts 19 from verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Arrestus, he stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius, Aristocrats, and the Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now, some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians temple keeper is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, it's great to be continuing on through the book of Acts as we follow now this missionary Paul who was sharing the gospel, who wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament, as we follow him on his journey sharing the gospel through the Mediterranean. Um, but just before we get there, just to back up on, um, on a couple of the announcements that, um, that Jacob made, Father's Day is next week. That's going to be a great week together. Also, baptisms, if you remember here, you would have got an email this week about baptism. And so if that's something that you want to do or you want to know more about, 
I'll be free right after the service today to chat more about that, where we stand on baptism and why it matters that we celebrate this together as a church family. So that would be great to do. But I'm going to pray for us now as we dive into Acts chapter 18 and 19 and see how the gospel disrupts and overturns cities in the most unexpected way. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are the God who disrupts, the God who has entered our lives and turned our lives and priorities upside down, the God who has saved us and taken us from death to life, and the God who has saved us in the most disruptive and unexpected way by sending your Son as a sacrifice for our sin that we might be made new and find forgiveness and be brought into relationship with you. So, Father, we pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, knowing that it's the power of salvation for all who believe, and that we would know that your power is revealed in it, that you, through Christ, have made a way back to you. And so, Father, as we see how this transforms cities in the ancient world, we'd see that it would transform our city in the same way. And we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed this in our culture, But there is a tendency to like the idea of danger more than the reality. There used to be, and I don't know if there still is, there used to be a festival called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. I don't know if you're familiar with it or the concept, but the idea is like you get all these speakers with diverse points of view, usually pretty controversial points of view, like speakers who didn't at all agree with one another, who even had enmity with one another. And the idea of this festival is like you bring them all together and you're going to hear some crazy stuff. And so the idea of that is like people who consider themselves you know, pretty robust, who, can, who have a high tolerance for ideas that they find disagreeable, this is the festival for you. However, after probably like the first year, they just started cancelling all the speakers with really controversial views. And it was like hilarious in one sense, but kind of sad in another. And so it kind of it kind of demonstrated that the heart of the festival was actually like, well, we do have a particular audience that we do want to cater to, but we also want to feel like we're not like that. So we're going to call it a festival of dangerous ideas, but it's mostly going to be ideas that you like, but other people might find them dangerous. And it was kind of like, I remember at high school, some guys in the year below us watched Fight Club. And if you don't know what that is, it's a movie about like, some guys who beat each other up, but they're still friends, and then they end capitalism together. So it's amazing. And they watched this movie, and they got G'd up from the feet up, and they're like, we're going to start a fight club. Then they had all these rules, like you can't hit the face, and you can't have a closed fist, and um, you can't kick, and you can't, you know, whatever. And so in the end, it was like, oh, so it's like, it's not like a fight club, it's more of like a, like a tickle club. And we kind of, ooh, watch out, you know, that sort of thing. And again, it was the idea of like, wanting to have something that sounds really tough and robust, but then in reality, just wanting safety. And I think like with the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, there can be this sense that like, we like the idea of danger and disruption and all these kind of things, but in the end what we want is something nice and safe. And I reckon the danger for our church probably isn't to become really hard-nosed, fundamentalist, angry, and to kind of bring the gospel into disrepute in that way, but to become just a nice church, where people would walk away from Sunday gatherings and be like, that was nice, the music was nice, and we had a nice morning tea, and the weather was nice, and everything was just, like, what's the word? Just nice. We have nice small groups where we have a nice chat, we have a nice tea and biscuits, and then we walk away, and it has very little impact on our lives or on the city around us. 
And I think the enemy would love for there to be nothing more than a bunch of really nice churches where people don't feel any particular antagonism towards the church as it dies off. They just feel like, oh, that's kind of sad for them. Gosh, Jesus seems like a nice guy. It would be nice if more people liked him. And the problem with that is that the gospel isn't nice. The gospel is disruptive. It offends and it upsets our sensibilities. And the gospel is like this because Jesus is like this. It wasn't that Jesus was nice or that Jesus was the nicest man who ever walked the earth. He was something better than that. He was the most loving person who ever walked the earth. And love is disruptive when it's real. Love disrupts. Jesus disrupted nice people's nice dinners and he upset them with the truth. He upset religious establishments and traditions. And he upset people to the point where they killed him because of it. And he was willing to do it because he didn't come to be nice. He came to love and to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. That's the gospel. The gospel is not about a God who is nice, but a God who is good and true and right and just and who loves with an everlasting love and who reached into human history to save sinners like you and me. And it's better than nice. And so what we should long for as a church community is not to walk away from Sunday gatherings being like, that was nice, but to be like, man, the Word of God hit like a hammer or it cut like a sword or it burned like a fire. And then our groups and small groups would not be nice and pleasant, but would be life-changing and life-transforming and would disrupt our nice lives. Because what we're going to see here is that when Paul goes to cities to hold out the gospel, he doesn't go there to deliberately upset people. He's not trying to be a jerk. But as he reasons with people, as he loves and serves people, as they do things like, like heal the sick, in this, as they preach the gospel, it disrupts the cities. And not only that, but the churches continued to do this until the point in 300 AD where more than 50%, or where, where all of the Roman cities, the major Roman cities, were more than 50% Christian because the gospel had so disrupted them that it had taken over the Roman Empire. And so Paul, we'll see here, is going to go from city to city. And he's going to be strategic about it. He's going to major cultural cities where the opposition will be most fierce, but where there is the most opportunity for the gospel, because that's where the most need is. And he's going to go from city to city where there are dense and diverse populations, and he's going to hold out the gospel amidst opposition, and it's going to radically disrupt the cities. And so we're going to start where we left off last week, which is in Athens. And we'll pick up the story in, in 18, chapter 1, where we read this. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded the Jews to leave Rome. We'll get to what that means in a bit. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul goes here from one major city to another. He's in Athens at one point, and the map will come up on the screen for you. I've put the red dots on there now so that everyone can be aware of like where on the map Paul actually is during this journey. So he's in Athens. That's the speech last week where he says, you know, men of Athens, I see that you're religious in every way. What you, you know, worship as an unknown God, I'm going to proclaim to you all of that. Some people believe him. Some people mock him. Others say we want to hear more. And then Paul moves on from that city. Some of the disciples come with him. Some stay to share the gospel. And he moves about 40 miles west to Corinth, another major city in the ancient world. And Corinth, too, had many similarities to our city. If you read the book of Corinthians, either one or two, you'll see that one of the major themes was that the gospel's sexual ethic really collided with the sexual ethic of the city. That their sexual ethic was similar to ours. It was a kind of an anything-goes sort of culture. And as the gospel lands in this culture, that's a real sticking point. I mean, you can read about it further on in 1 and 2 Corinthians. But here, Paul goes to the city of Corinth, and there he meets Priscilla and Aquila. And he meets Aquila, who's a fellow Jewish man, because they share the same trade. So Paul isn't, isn't kind of a full-time Christian worker. He's meeting his own needs by making tents or potentially just working leather. And while he's doing that, he meets a guy called Aquila, who is also a Jew and also a follower of Jesus. And we're told here that the reason that Priscilla and Aquila are not in Rome, but they're in Corinth, is because of the gospel. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius put out an edict which meant that if you caused a disturbance, that is, you caused some kind of civil disturbance because of following Jesus, that you would get kicked out of the city of Rome. And so we're told here, Luke records for us, that the reason that they're here is they've been kicked out. That means that potentially they just followed Jesus and other people caused a stink or a riot or some kind of disturbance and got them kicked out. But whichever way it is, they're such serious followers of Christ that they had to leave their home city to be here because they believe in Jesus. And so Paul meets them here and straight away they connect. Paul's like, you've been kicked out of cities, so have I. Join the club. We're like, we're in this together. And they're tent makers and they're working together and sharing the gospel. And it's crazy to think that at this point, we're only 20 years after Jesus' ministry began. Remember, he only started his ministry when he was 30 years old. And we're now around AD 50. And already Christianity has had such an impact in the Roman Empire that the emperor feels like he has to create an edict specifically about the disruption that the gospel is causing. So just keep that in mind as you think about things. But here... Paul does what he always does. He preaches the word and he starts where he always starts, which is in the synagogue, which was a Jewish place of teaching. And he's reasoning and arguing for the gospel. And eventually, the opposition gets so strong that Paul says, you know what, your blood be on your own heads. From now on, I'm going to Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, and I'm going to share the gospel with them. And then we're told that he stays with the guy who lives next to the synagogue. So just imagine how uncomfortable that is. Like everyone going to synagogue is like, hey, isn't that the guy who said your blood be on your own heads the other week? <laughs> like, hey, how you going? You know, sort of thumbs up and keep going. But it says that from then on, uh, he continues to teach. And look what it says here in Acts uh, 18, 9 and 10. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you. 
for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So God says to Paul, after facing opposition initially, in a vision, he says, don't worry, I've got many people in this city, no one will harm you. And so Paul then responds, not by saying, well, God, if you've already got many people in this city, I guess you've got it covered, I'll move on from here. No, because of that, he stays a year and a half and preaches. And just, just look how low the bar is for Paul in terms of what it takes for him to see it as a gospel opportunity. Basically, God says, for 18 months, you won't get beat up for sharing the gospel. And Paul's like, amazing, this is fertile ground. I can't wait to get stuck in. And he preaches the gospel over and over. But it's interesting to note here how Paul responds to the sovereignty of God. Because God says, I have people in this city, Paul says, well, therefore, I'm going to stay and preach. You can think of it in this way. Imagine, imagine you were on the Matildas team and you, were, you saw in a vision from God, you were told directly you were going to win the World Cup. If you were told that and you knew it to be a certainty, would it motivate you or demotivate you? You would imagine, unless, unless you were just in it for the reputation and you didn't really care about the game, you just, you just like to be seen as someone who's you know, successful or significant, but if you love the game, of course that would motivate you to go forward, wouldn't it? Knowing that what you're doing is worthwhile, that it's going to bear fruit, that it actually matters. And in the same way here, God says to Paul, I have many people in this city, so keep going, keep sharing the gospel, keep going through opposition. He doesn't say to him, you're going to make thousands of disciples. Everyone's going to like you. You're going to be universally loved. No, he just says, I have many people in this city. So push on through the difficulty. Keep going. Keep sharing because people are going to come to faith. And they do. But after the year and a half of safety has passed, eventually the persecution comes and Paul has to move on. And at this point, he moves from the major city of Corinth. He's been in the major city of Athens, then to Corinth. And here we're going to see that he goes from Corinth all the way over to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was one of the most significant cities in the Roman Empire. It was home, as you heard in the reading before, of the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this is like, the, it's like an opera house level kind of tourist spot. People would travel from all over the world, the known world, to get to this place because of the temple. So it was a major city. It had a massive population, and it was a diverse population because lots of people were coming to visit. And so it was a place where there were many different worldviews, many different ethnicities. It was a cultural melting pot. And we're going to pick up the story with Paul in Ephesus. And he's going to start where he always starts, at the synagogue. Look at this in Acts 19. It says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So he starts in the synagogue. He's reasoning with them about Jesus, the Messiah, convincing them from the scriptures that this is the case. Again, the opposition rises, and because of this, he leaves the synagogue. But then he goes on to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. 
So presumably it was a hall, a learning hall, or potentially even a school owned by a guy, a benefactor called Tyrannus. But he stays there for two years and he preaches the gospel continually. And we're told at this point that all the residents of Asia heard the word of God. And Asia here, by the way, means kind of probably more Asia Minor like Turkey. Not Asia potentially as we would think of it as a global map at this point. But the gospel has got across to so many people and has impacted so many lives that Luke records here that everyone's heard about it in the region. Paul goes to this cultural melting pot, knowing strategically that that is the best way to reach the largest number of people. And he teaches day in and day out, while still probably applying his trade as a tent maker, but preaching the gospel, reasoning people with people day in and day out, until the gospel has made it this far into the culture. But then things get even crazier. Paul performs some miracles, and during this, the whole region hears about it. And because Ephesus, because there's a temple there, they're very focused on magic and dark arts and things like that. And so when Paul performs a miracle here, people hear about it, and the rumblings become so wide that so many people come to faith that they start destroying or burning their kind of books of sorcery and the like. And because of that, it actually starts to disrupt the city in such a way that it gets the attention of the business leaders. Look what happens in Acts 19. It says, Now after these events, so this is the miracles that Paul has performed, that everyone's heard about, and there's been all these conversions to Christianity. It says, After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he's not going there, he's just planning to go there at this point. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus... But in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. To think that that would be controversial, but it is. And he says, And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great god Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So here, the gospel has got such traction in the culture that a business leader named Demetrius, who has made his wealth and his money out of selling little silver shrines of the goddess Artemis, gets everyone together and says, guys, this is our business. And this Paul guy keeps talking about Jesus and keeps saying the gods that are made with human hands aren't gods, and people are believing him. And if this keeps happening, our God, who really is a God, will be as nothing, which of course he doesn't see the irony of, right? That if your God really is a God, they can't be made nothing. But here he says she might be deposed of her magnificence. And so we have to fight for this. Now, imagine the modern day equivalent that in the inner west, the gospel got such traction that it actually started to affect businesses. Imagine that the casino and the betting agencies were starting to have to close. And the pubs were annoyed about those Christians who just come in for just one drink and a lunch. And then they go, you're like, oh, come on. And the, the VIP room is just empty, right? 
Imagine all of these business leaders get together and they're like, guys, we've got to do something about this. These Christians are a pain. It's killing our trade. This is going to have a massive impact if this keeps going. We need to do something. I mean, imagine that. If it was to have that much traction in the culture that it would turn things upside down, that it would actually change the economic landscape of the inner west. And not because of top-down government legislation, but a ground-up revolution. That's what's happening here in Ephesus. And so how do they respond to this? Do they respond reasonably by saying like, well, look, fair's fair. Good arguments, you know, will beat worse arguments, so let's, let's debate it with him. No, instead they say, you know what, let's start a riot. And so we pick up the story in, in verse 28 when this happens. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make a defence to the crowd. But when they recognised he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, I love how human this passage is. The business leaders wind everyone up and everyone runs into the theater and, and they're all, they start really a massive disturbance. They grab Gaius and Aristarchus, who were two of the guys who were with Paul. They drag them into this fray. Um, but the best line in all of this is when Luke records for us that there was such a crowd there that there were people running around and shouting and there were many who were there who didn't even know why they were there. Like if there was like an ancient news crew kind of holding out a mic to someone about like, what's this all about? They'd be like, I don't know. I just saw, I saw the energy and the vibe. And I was like, I'm about that. I don't have anything on today. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to get amongst this crowd. And I don't really know what we're doing, but I'm excited, right? And in many ways, that's probably not that different from today. But here, there's this massive disturbance. And the crowd is so confused and their objectives are so unclear that they don't even know what to do once they get together and they end up just shouting, Great is Artemis, for like two hours straight. And so this scene is of complete chaos. It's this weird kind of overreaction to the impact the gospel is having on this culture. There's a, a, an, an uncomprehending nature here where they don't quite know how to respond, but there's anger about it and everyone is causing chaos. But eventually, karma heads prevail and the town clerk has to get everyone together to calm this all down. And in 35 we read, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? See then that these things cannot be denied. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone. The courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. 
So the town clerk who's responsible for order quiets the crowd and says, look, if Artemis is real, then you don't need to make a fuss about it. If Artemis really is a god, then you don't need to cause all this chaos. But more than that, we, you, there are courts if you want to bring charges against these guys. There are legal procedures for all of this and causing a riot is not the way to respond. And more than that, he says, look, and we're concerned because there's no reason for this and we might get in trouble upstream in Rome. Right? We already know in, from context that Claudius had put out an edict about causing a stir about Jesus. And so I guess he has that in mind or is worried what kind of implications there might be. So he's eager to disperse the crowd and to reassure them they don't need to worry about anything. If Artemis really is God, then there's nothing to stress about. And karma heads prevail and the crowd disbands, but the mark has been left, hasn't it? Everyone has heard now about this gospel that turns everything upside down. Everyone in that region now knows that the gospel is disruptive. Do you know what's strange? Is that particularly in startups, there is kind of a, almost a virtue around being disruptive. And everyone wants to start or at least invest in the next unicorn company that's going to disrupt an industry. But a lot of these disruptive companies, if you think about it, are not that disruptive. What they'll do is they'll go into an industry and they will, more successfully than anyone else, take more money for themselves and give less to others. You're like, that's not, that's not really changing how things were. That's just kind of speeding it up. The most of the time what these companies do is they pay less people less money so that few people can have more money. They just siphon more to the top. And that's considered incredibly innovative and disruptive. But it's not so much disruption as just acceleration. The gospel actually disrupt cities. It can take a guy like Paul, who's willing to kill Christians, and turn him into a Christian who is unwilling to kill and is even willing to lay down his life to love others. It can take people like Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, who was willing to steal from and exploit his own people for his own gain, and turn him into someone who is generous and gives away his money and even gives back the money that he took and gives it fourfold back. It takes men and women who would be cowards and makes them bold. It takes people who would do anything to please others and teaches them to live only for God. It takes dead people and makes them alive. It takes people who for their whole life fear death and makes them fearless. It takes people who would do anything for love and gives them a love that can never be taken from them. And that's why by AD 300, the, for the, all of the Roman cities that over 50% of them were Christian. Because the gospel disrupted city after city until it eventually became the predominant worldview in the Roman Empire and overthrew it. The gospel disrupts. And so if you're here and unsure where you stand before God or you're just investigating the gospel for the first time, it is upon me to say that the gospel is offensive. And likely one of the most offensive things you will hear because the gospel is this, that you are a sinner who has offended God and has walked away and rebelled against God. And yet, God loves you and has made the way for forgiveness available to you through Jesus. And I think what's so strange about the gospel is that it's not just that it's disruptive or offensive, it's that it's also incredibly compelling at the same time. I think that's what speaks to the truth of the gospel. The late Tim Keller put it this way, The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, 
Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. There's just no message like that. You can find messages out there that are either one or the other. They're either going to say that you're rubbish or say that you're great. If you just believe in yourself, you can do anything. And there are people who will happily make money out of you by selling you that line. But the gospel says both. That if you are to accept Jesus, it's accepting God's verdict on me that I'm a sinner. But then to accept Jesus is to accept God's verdict on me that, that I'm loved and eternally loved. There is no message like the gospel and no message that disrupts like the gospel. And so if you're here and unsure about where you stand with God, why not investigate this? There is nothing like it. And if you are here and a believer, let me ask you this question. Has the gospel actually disrupted your life in any way? Has the gospel actually disrupted your life in any way? Because it can be the case that you can be sold the line that to be a Christian is to have a nice Jesus and being a Christian is just being a part of a nice church and a nice community that doesn't really impact your life in any significant way. But we can see from this passage and throughout the Gospel and throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament that this is not how God operates. That when He comes into a life, He changes it and transforms it so it's not the same as before. C.S. Lewis put it so eloquently when he said it this way. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you know that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here and putting an extra floor there. Running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a nice decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. God's plan is not that you just have your life with a little bit of Jesus thrown in. But to completely transform your life. So the question is, has the gospel disrupted your life in a major way? Can you think of even one major life decision that was different because of the gospel? Has the gospel disrupted the way you think about relationships, about sex, about money, about work? Have you ever turned down a job or taken a job for the sake of the gospel? The gospel disrupts. And if it hasn't disrupted your life in any way, it is possible that you may not have really and truly encountered the grace of God in the gospel. But if you have, just be encouraged that when it seems difficult to follow Jesus or it's unclear what God is doing, when it seems like he's causing more disruption than you initially anticipated, that it's not because he's not at work in your life, but because this is what he plans to do. This is sanctification. That as he changes us to be more like Jesus, he changes us in ways that we weren't anticipating or expected because God's mind is higher than our mind and his ways are higher than our ways. And he can be trusted. The God who has disrupted city after city and country after country is a God who disrupts our own lives and our own hearts through the gospel. And so if you are one who follows Jesus, 
the challenge I want to leave you with is this as well. That it should be the case that while the gospel disrupts our lives, it should be having an impact on the city around us. One of the primary ways that that happens is as God's people hear the word of God, hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and then tell the gospel to those around us. And I think oftentimes the reason that we're tempted not to bring up God in conversations is that we don't want to disrupt our nice relationships. And you're like, if I introduce the gospel into this, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what will happen on the other side. And I can tell this happens to me often. Because my full-time job is working in a church, often the gospel comes up in, the, in conversations a little bit earlier than everyone's anticipating. When you first get to meet people, what we do is we start with facts, so just simple basic statistics about our life, and we don't get into real stuff like worldview or relationships until a little bit further on. But the problem is, one of the first, conversa- one of the first questions that people ask is, what do you do for work? And at that point, I have to share that I work at a church. And oftentimes, people at that point are like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I didn't, we weren't ready to get into religion yet. We're just talking about what do you do during the week. We're not ready to like, dive that deep. And oftentimes, at that point, I have the choice to make. I can either be like, let's bring it back up to how nice the weather is or something else, or I can send the conversation deeper into that. And the question usually is something along the lines of, do you have a faith? And I can feel the temptation in many of these conversations to be like, I don't know if I'm up for this. Or even this, even this week it came up, like I was running with someone who was much fitter than I am. Never met this guy before, so it's part of like a run group. And while we're going along, he asked the question like, what do you do for work? And I'm like, ah, I've got to make the decision to, to make this call. And I actually prayed. I was like, God, I can't keep up with him. I don't have enough breath to kind of finish this conversation. You're the God who gives breath and life to all things. <laughs> Can I, just, can I just be out? Can you just lower my heart rate so I can finish this conversation if I start it? And he didn't, but I started it anyway. And so kind of breathlessly, I was trying to just get out answers about what I do during the week and what it means and all that sort of thing. But I feel it, and you probably do too. I just want to be liked. I just want our friendships to be nice and for us all to get along. And I know that if I introduce Jesus, that Jesus isn't just nice, and it can be disruptive, and it makes things uncertain. But I want to put the challenge out to you that we as God's people are called to share this disruptive gospel. And so can I challenge you with this? To, maybe it is a question like, do you have a faith? But to actually take the opportunity to ask people that, not just as a once-off, not like you psych yourself up for it, throw it out there, and they're like, nope, and then you're like, great, I did my bit, I'm out, I'm, and check out. But you actually think you are the appointed missionary for your group of friends. They're not as far as I know, planning to come to a church gathering or to a small group or anything. But God has put you in their lives to love them and to serve them and to share the gospel with them. So maybe it's the challenge that over this week and the coming weeks to say, just once a week I'm going to ask someone that simple question, do you have a faith, and see where it goes. Or maybe uh, next week it's Father's Day and it's a chance to invite your dad who knows that you're a believer or maybe he doesn't. And I say, just come along and hear this message. Get a family photo together, the old bait and switch, and then, and then hear the gospel. We don't do bait and switch. Just by the way, be clear about what this is about. But to share with your dad. Or maybe, you know, as things kind of go on in the term, that as, as the series comes up about more to life, we're asking the questions, is there more to life than finding the one? Is there more to life than wealth? Is there more to life than just a good time? To think about the friends and family in your life and actually take the risk 
that it might disrupt those friendships to actually invite them along. Or to invite them to Alpha or whatever it is. The truth is the gospel is calls, is calls us to disrupt. That it is disruptive, but in the best possible way. And that as we step out in faith in following Christ in this, we won't just see lives disrupted, but changed and transformed to find a hope that's everlasting, to find the thing that people are looking for, that people are searching everywhere for what life is about, and life is, is found in Christ and Christ alone. And Paul believed that. He knew that God had many people in the city, and so he continued to preach and share. And he faced opposition, but he saw incredible change as well. May we too trust God that he has many people in this city. Let's pray. Father, we just repent of the fact that so often we know you, we love you, we trust you. But in moments, we lack trust to know that it's good to share the gospel. And so often we withdraw or pull back. And we're worried about the kind of disruption this might bring into our lives. We pray that we would see that to follow you is disruptive and a disruption that we need. That you alone are the God who loves and who saves. You alone are the author of life and salvation. That you alone are the God who sent Christ as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And just as it turned the world upside down in Ephesus, may it turn the world upside down in Sydney. That we might see you at work we might see your power at work through the gospel and your spirit at work in people's lives and in our hearts also. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.